only takes a second or two to flip in your Bible from the very end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, but imagine that took about 400 years to turn that one page or two as we make our way from the very end of the Old Testament to the very beginning of the New. We've begun making our way lately through the Gospel of Matthew. And last week we focused our attention on the opening part of chapter 3. So you can look there if you'd like. The first part of chapter 3 is where we turned last week. It was our introduction to John the Baptist. So listen again to verses 1 through 6. These are the verses that we covered last week. Verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And earlier in our service today, we heard those words again from Isaiah. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verses 1 through 6. And remember what we saw last week, and we, we heard these words again this morning, the very last words in the Old Testament. The end of Malachi were a prophecy that one day the Lord would send a prophet like Elijah. And he would send that prophet for the purpose of getting the people of God ready for the coming of God. And John was that prophet. And so John announced that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. In other words, John announced that God at last, as promised, was stepping in to save. John announced that God was on the move. And that's why John also called the people of God to come back to God. John called them to repentance. Because that's what it looks like to be ready for God. To be ready for Him means that you've come back to Him so as to be forgiven by Him. That's what God's people needed to hear in John's day. Because John's day was about to become Jesus' day as well, a Savior waiting in the wings. So that was last week, verses 1 through 6. That brings us to this week. We'll pick up where we left off, and we'll cover verses 7 through 12. So I'll keep reading for us. Listen now to God's Word, beginning at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. Let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would steady us now, for these are fearful words that we've just heard. Would you steady us, hold on to us, and give us ears to hear what you would have us learn from these words today. For we trust that these words, like all of the words of the writings, the scriptures, were written for our instruction And so that becomes our prayer, that you would instruct us now. Instruct us of mind and heart that it might show in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week when we were introduced to John the Baptist, we talked a little bit about why it is that he's called that. He's called John the Baptist and not say... John the Preacher. And what we said last week is that he was called that. He was called John the Baptist because that's what was so unique about his ministry. That ceremonial washing, that's what set him apart from all of the other prophets who'd come before him. John, who is the last of the Old Covenant prophets. So, called John the Baptist and not John the Preacher. By the time we reach the end of our our passage here this morning, verses 7 through 12, you've also been reminded as to why he was not called John the Salesman. This is clearly not a man who's peddling a product, so that he wants to win people over to the product that he's peddling by applying the principles he learned in business school for winning people over to your product. This is a man who's got crowds of people who are flocking to him, and the way he greets them is to cut them down to size and to demand that they mend their ways. This is not a man who's saying, what do I have to do to get you under my baptismal water today? This is not John the Salesman. If we want to put it in more up-to-date parlance, we can say, this wasn't John the Influencer. This wasn't a guy who's trying to get video viewers to click, like, and subscribe. He cut them down to size, and he demanded that they, end, that they mend their ways. This was not John the Influencer. This was John the Baptist, who was a prophet. And the baptism that he administered had everything to do with the prophecy that he'd been given. This was John the Baptist, who was a prophet. And the prophets of the Old Covenant, and John was the last of them, even though we meet him here in the New Testament, John was the last of the Old Covenant prophets. And they were not salesmen. They weren't influencers. They were spokesmen from from God who had a hard word from God. And among other things, that meant speaking hard words from God about judgment and repentance. And maybe even speaking words like those to people in power. Remember, a man named Elijah was one of them. One of those prophets that you come across in the Old Testament. We can say that John was one of the greatest of them, or Elijah was. 
And it was certainly true of Elijah. In the days of Ahab and Jezebel. That he had to speak hard words from God about judgment and repentance. And even speak words like those to people in power. Elijah. No salesman. No influencer. Well sure enough. John the Baptist. Is just like Elijah. And of course he was. Because that's what God had said. God had promised centuries before that John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And our passage here this morning, verses 7 through 12, is proof positive of that. The kind of prophet that John was. So we want to make the most of what he had to say. We want to dig deep into these verses And I'll tell you right now, as we make our way through verses 7 through 12, there are three lessons that we're going to glean from them. First is, wrath is coming. John pulls no punches about that. Wrath is coming. The second is, real repentance shows. Real repentance shows. And the third is, Jesus is now the great baptizer. Those three, wrath is coming, real repentance shows, and Jesus, in whom is our faith, Jesus is the great baptizer. So let's start with the first of those three, and it is a hard truth to think about wrath. Look again at verse 7. It says this, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Quite a greeting. Not an unheard of phrase spoken by the prophets, spoken by Jesus about those who pretended to know God, but who did not. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what's going on here? In these opening verses. Well, you've got representatives of two of the leading religious parties among the Jews in those days. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. You've got representatives of those two groups who are coming out to John. In the region outside of Jerusalem. That's where he's situated. It could be that they were coming out to him for the purpose of actually receiving his baptism. As a kind of religious show. That they were going to put on for the people. Maybe. Or it could be that they were just curious about John. And they wanted to learn more about what his baptism was all about. And they didn't intend anything more than that. Just a fact finding mission. Maybe that. It does say something about John's appeal. That you had both Pharisees and Sadducees who were coming out to him, bear in mind, those were two parties among the Jews in those days that did not get along. Those were two religious groups that had very different views about the writings and what they taught. But apparently they've got this much in common. This is what brings them together on this particular day. They're all curious about John. 
And they're all willing to go out to him, at least to find out what he's all about, if not more. In any case, whatever their motivations were for coming out to him, he greets them harshly. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, what are you doing here? I'm calling people to repentance. My baptism is about true repentance. What does that have to do with you? My baptism is about true repentance before it's too late, before wrath comes. And I know you people well enough to know that that's not true of you. That's not where you are before wrath comes. And so he greets them. Now, wrath. Obviously, it's never pleasant to have to talk about the wrath of God. We probably wake up on a Sunday morning with a long list of other happier topics that we'd much rather talk about before we talk about this one. But John does refer to wrath here. And so we need to come to grips with it if we're going to understand this passage. And we also need to say, this is an aspect of God's glory. This isn't something for us to apologize for. It is an aspect of God's glory. That he feels what he does feel about human sin and impenitence and that he intends to act accordingly. This isn't something for us to apologize for. This isn't a truth that we should only grudgingly admit and then move on. Let's let's take the time to come to grips with this and worship. When we start talking about God's wrath, what we're talking about is his holy anger that he feels about human sin And impenitence, God's holy anger. When the human race fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, God was angry. That was the beginning of human rebellion against his rule. And ever since that first fall, that rebellion has persisted. And therefore, ever since that first fall, he has been rightly, divinely angry about that rebellion. And all of the ways in which it persists in human lives. God's Holy anger. And it is worth underlining that his wrath is holy. And the reason why that's worth underlining is that our wrath, our anger, often is not because we're sinners. Our anger can be selfish because it's all about us not getting our own way, and that bothers us. Our anger can be irrational. Because sometimes it's not actually connected with reality, with the facts on the ground, the facts of a situation. And our anger can be out of control. Because we end up lashing out in a way that goes way beyond the thing that we were angry about in the first place. But God's anger is holy. It's not like ours in any of those ways. When he's wrathful, he's rightly wrathful. Because what he's angry about is rebellion against his own rule, and he should be angry about that. And insofar as we come to partake of his holiness, we should be too. And not only that, but his anger is always perfectly in tune with the way things really are. He never misreads the situation. He never gets his facts wrong. 
so that he has to go back and correct himself and change what he feels. And not only that, but when he pours out his anger in judgment, he pours it out perfectly. He's never out of control or excessive or carried away the way we sometimes are. And that's why I say, this is an aspect of his glory. As hard as this word is, this drives us to our knees in worship. And what John is saying to the folks who are coming out to him is that wrath is coming. In other words, it's not just that God feels what he does feel about sin and impenitence. It's also that a day is coming when he's going to express it. He's going to manifest it. He's going to pour it out. And then if you skip down to verse 12, verse 12 tells us who it is who's going to do that, who's going to manifest the wrath of God on behalf of God. And the answer is, It's the Son of God. Look at verse 12. Because in verse 12, John's talking about Jesus. Though Jesus has not appeared publicly yet in the way that he's about to, though Jesus remains waiting in the wings, John's talking about him here in verse 12. And what does he say? He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's talking about Jesus. Wrath will come when the Son comes. The wrath of God will come when the Son of God comes at the end of the age. So here we are in 2024, a couple thousand years after John and Jesus, looking forward to anticipating that dread day. Paul talks about it over in 2 Thessalonians. Talks about it in rather chilling terms. Because here's Paul now. Talking about Jesus in 2 Thessalonians. Paul who knew the tender mercy of Jesus. Paul who knew the forgiving grace of Christ. Paul says this about him. In 2 Thessalonians 1. He says the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians 1. That day is coming. That day when Christ is coming. And John, in his own day, was pointing them forward to it. And not only that, not only was John eyeing a day distant future, But he could also recognize the significance of the day they were living in. Because Jesus was already waiting in the wings in John's day. There's a sense in which judgment was near at hand as well. The axe is already laid at the root. So that first lesson to learn here. Wrath is coming. Now how does that Touchdown in our lives. What difference does that make for us today? We might be tempted to think as Christians, it doesn't touch down in our lives. To think about divine wrath for the simple reason that we're safe from it. We're forgiven. And that's certainly true. In, in 1 Thessalonians, 
Paul says this, we are those who are waiting for God's son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's 1 Thessalonians 1. And then near the end of that same letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says it again. He says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5. So that's true. We are safe now. We are a forgiven people. But still, it ought to make a difference in our lives today just to know that wrath is coming. One, we ought to be grateful. I mean inexpressibly grateful for Jesus and the forgiveness that is ours in him because that's the only reason we are safe from the wrath to come. Two, we ought to be willing as a church in this community and as Christians in the world to testify to this hard truth. Because people need to be warned. And sinners need to be called to Christ. And three... We ought to be reminded to tremble again and to recoil again from sin and the sins that we still wrestle with for the simple reason that sin deserves wrath, even if we're safe from it. The very fact that sin, considered of itself, is wrath-worthy, that ought to get our attention. That ought to be a wake-up call for us and a motivation for us as we continue to fight the good fight against it. So it turns out, after all, though, yes, we are safe from the wrath of God, it does touch down in terms of gratitude and witness and wariness of sin. So that's our first. Wrath is coming. Second is this. Our second lesson today. Real repentance shows. Real repentance shows. Verse 8. John says to these folks who are coming out to him. These Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then look down at verse 10. He says, every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So as I was saying before, John is saying to these people who are coming out to him, what are you doing here? I'm calling people to repentance. My baptism is about true repentance. He says to them, you're not safe from the wrath to come simply because you descend biologically from Abraham. That won't save you in the end. What will is that you avail yourselves of the forgiveness that's on offer from God. And the way you do that is by a genuine repentance by which you turn back to God. And so he seizes this as an opportunity to remind them what true repentance is like. What it looks like. And that's just it. It looks like something in the life of the one who's repented. It shows. It's the kind of reality that appears in a person's life. Think about the way our shorter catechism, our Westminster shorter catechism, defines repentance. 
The question is posed in our catechism. What is repentance unto life? And the answer is this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, with grief and hatred of his sin, turns from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's what repentance is. It's it's turning from sin to God. And it's that last part of the shorter catechism definition that really matters here. Repentance is turning from sin to God, quote, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience, end quote. In other words, when you turn back to God, you're going to want to obey him in a new way, and you are going to show it by going after that obedience. And the point is, if you do that, if you do turn back to God like that, and if you mean it, that's going to show in your life. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. Even after you repent, you still stumble and fall and wrestle with sin. But it does mean that you're going to want obedience and you're going to fight for it. And to some degree or another, in some way or ways or others, that's going to show. It's like over in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul says to the Corinthians, the folks who were part of that troubled church who had to turn back to God, he says to them in 2 Corinthians 7, I rejoice because you did turn back to God, and I know you did because I can see it. I can see the fruits of it in your lives and in your life as a congregation. So yes, repentance is a reality on the inside of us. It's a reality in the heart. But if it's real, it'll show on the outside of us as well. It'll manifest itself in words and deeds that you can hear and see. And this too, this second point, real repentance shows, this touches down in our lives. This makes a difference in our lives today. This is a challenge for all of us today. Thinking about what John said. If somebody were to rewind, say, the last month or two months of your life and watch it back, would they see evidence that this is the life of somebody who's turned back to God? Would they have any reason to conclude that? If somebody were to rewind the last month or two of your life and watch it back, would they have reason to say... This person's a Christian. What does it look like in your life right now that that's true of you? That you are somebody who's turned back to God. And that does touch down, not just in the, um, the overall course or trajectory of our lives, we've turned back to God and we're seeking him. That also touches down in those little repentance moments day after day. As you deal with sin, quite practically, quite specifically, day after day. As I was saying last week, is there some sin in your life that you've made friends with? And it's time to wake up and turn from it. Is there some sin in your life that you claim to have repudiated, but that claim by now is starting to ring hollow? Because you've practically laid down arms. And given up the fight against it. 
When God comes to us, it's time for us to come back to him. And God has come to us in Jesus. And so it's time for us to repent and show it. And understand, this is good news. This isn't something to object to or complain about. This isn't, oh man, i got to bear fruit too. It's not enough just to say I repent. As if that were regrettable. This isn't something to object to or complain about. This is a blessing. I've come back to God and now I get to show it. I get to show it in words and deeds. I get to glorify the God I turned back to. And I get to glorify him by showing the world that I meant it. And that it wasn't just words. Repentance bears fruit in new obedience according to the gospel. And that's the sweetest kind of fruit. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And this is a sweet catalog, a sweet litany. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is sweet fruit. It's fruit that doesn't go bad. It's fruit that's always in season. It's fruit that's always available. It's fruit that's beautifully, perfectly cut and served by our gracious God. It's fruit that pairs well with every single thing you're dealing with and living out. And by the grace of God, it's fruit that we now have a taste for. John said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And thank God he insisted on that. Thank God he highlighted that because it's the sweetest of fruit. So yes, our first point today, wrath is coming. But also our second, real repentance shows. And now our third, the third of the three. And and it's now that we, we turn our eyes to Jesus. Jesus is the great baptizer. We know his name now. John knew his name too. Doesn't name him here in these verses. Jesus is the great baptizer. Look at verses 11 and 12. And I think these are the verses that are printed there in your bulletin. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So among other things in those verses, John is preparing the people for Jesus, the kind of Savior that he's going to be. When John says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's most likely that that one phrase, Holy Spirit and fire, that's one potent phrase that's meant to sum up the good, gracious, saving spiritual baptism that Christ pours out upon his people. Holy Spirit and fire, almost like it's hyphenated. In the Old Testament, you have the idea that fire could be a blessing. Fire insofar as it purifies. 
and saves. And so John, when he talks about baptism with Holy Spirit and fire, is talking about the saving baptism that Christ will carry out. Jesus is the great baptizer of the church. And what we mean is he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon us to save, to bless, including this, to purify us as by fire. It would certainly seem a little strange in our ears if we ever heard our Savior referred to as Jesus the Baptist. But technically, there's some truth in that. I suppose you might want to put the word the in all caps. It was John the Baptist. But now it's Jesus the Baptist. Jesus is the great baptizer. He's poured out his Holy Spirit into our lives to bless, to save, even this, to purify us as by fire. Jesus is the great baptizer of the church. What does that mean for us today? Let me highlight two things. First is this. Christian, Jesus has poured out his spirit into your life. That means you're marked for eternity. That means you're safe for eternal life. You're marked by God. You're being safely kept by God because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit who's been poured into your life by Jesus, the great baptizer. That's what the Spirit is. Paul says in Ephesians that the Spirit is the down payment on your share in the world to come. Best kind of baptism. You're safe. You're secure. You're sealed. No matter what happens to you today. Or this week of days until we meet here again. Nothing and no one can take that from you. When Jesus baptizes, it's baptism forever. And I wonder this morning what, what you might... What might you be afraid of in terms of what could happen to you today or in the week to come. No matter who or what comes your way, the Spirit is yours to stay, and therefore you belong to God forever. That is one of the implications, one of the applications of the fact that Jesus is the great baptizer of the church. But then second, and also this, Be reminded, when you get Jesus by faith, you get all of Jesus. All that he is, all that he comes and intends to do in your life. When you first believe in Jesus and he pours out his Holy Spirit into your life, you get the Holy Spirit in all of his ministry. And yes, that ministry includes purifying you as by fire. That's part of the package. But that's a good fire. That's not a fire that you have to be afraid of or run away from. When the Holy Spirit purifies your mind from vengeful thoughts, for example, that's good fire. When the Holy Spirit purifies your heart from idolatrous longings that dishonor God, that's a good fire. When the Holy Spirit forges you through the trials that he brings you through 
so that you come through them more like Christ, that's a good fire. I've been struck several times now by how some things that we experience in this life, natural phenomena, can be blessing or curse. One and the same thing, depending upon the circumstances. So, for example, water. Water is a curse. When a pipe bursts in your kitchen ceiling, and even five years later, I still have PTSD from when that happened to us. Or when it's the waters of a flood. Or it's the waves of a storm. But water is a blessing to drink and swim in and canoe on and more. Well, fire, fire is the same way. Fire is a curse when it consumes so as to destroy House fire, wildfire. But it's a blessing when it comes in order to warm and forge and purify. And I say that as somebody who's been going through a lot of firewood lately in our home. The pile is diminishing there in the backyard as we have enjoyed fires in the fireplace during winter. The fire of God is just like that. The fire of God, which is the Holy Spirit poured out upon sinners. That's a curse. If it's the Spirit being poured out in judgment, the Spirit consuming so as to destroy, and that day is coming. But it's a blessing. The fire of God, the Spirit poured out as a blessing For us who belong to Jesus, who are now found in Christ, and that's because for us it's the Spirit being poured out in order to purify us and forge us to make us more like our Savior. That, brothers and sisters, is a very good fire. So you don't have to be afraid of it. It does make you tremble. It should. But you don't have to be afraid of it in a way that has you running away from it. No, we even draw near and seek the kindling of this fire because it is for our everlasting good. So, brothers and sisters, those lessons today. Yes, wrath is coming. Real repentance is how to be ready, and it shows. And Jesus is the great baptizer of the church I said at the outset here this morning when we got started, John, who said all of these things, John, who teaches us these lessons, John was no salesman. John was no influencer. Wasn't peddling a product. Wasn't aching for likes and subscribes and clicks. John had some hard things to say. But he also had some wonderful things to say. Our response, our right response to all of it that we've heard today is the same response That the disciples of Jesus had for him when he had hard things to say. He said to them, point blank, are you going to leave me? Are you going to leave too because of what I've said? And what was their response? Where else are we going to go? So here at New Hope today, we've heard some hard words that might cut us down to size. Thank God for them. Where else are we going to go? 
Are you going to go casting about for a different prophet with a different message, a message that's free of things like wrath and repentance? No, where, are, where else are we going to go? We hear the words of John and we should be able to say, we're not going anywhere. We're not leaving. The only place we're going to go is to go to Christ, which is where John points us anyway. The only place we're going to go is to go to Christ, whose message was the same as John's anyway. Wrath, repentance, baptism, forgiveness. So no, we don't belong to the same season in Bible history that John belonged to, and we can be grateful for that, but still we ought to honor him this last prophet of the Old Covenant. And the way we honor John the Baptist is to turn and flock to the great baptizer that John proclaimed. May it be so. And amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we tremble at these words today. And yet even in our trembling, we draw near to them. We draw near to you To be reminded that wrath is coming. We thank you that we are safe from it. Thanks to your blood shed on the cross. Grant us, we pray, to show in our lives that we have repented and turned back to you and our repentance is real. Thank you that you have baptized us with the Holy Spirit so that we are sealed for God. So that we are being purified by God. And we pray all of these things for your glory among us. Amen.